I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, David Eisenberg, a longtime researcher and writer on the subject of private military companies, joins us to discuss his responsible statecraft piece, The Rise and Fall of the Mozart Group. Founded amidst the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Mozart Group gained a great deal of positive attention for offering military training and evacuation services to the besieged Ukraine. Since then, however, the Mozart Group has shuttered its operations, with its two former U.S. Marine Colonel co-founders now embroiled in a rather thorny lawsuit against each other. What led to the spectacular rise and rapid fall of the Mozart Group? And how does it tie into the bigger picture of private military companies and the problem of war profiteering? All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views with David Eisenberg. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with, David Eisenberg, an independent researcher and writer on U.S. military, foreign policy, and national and international security issues with a focus on uh, private military companies and private security contractors. He's the author of Shadow Force, Private Security Contractors in Iraq, and he has a blog, the Eisenberg Institute of Strategic Satire. We're going to be talking today about the rise and fall of the Mozart Group, which uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it later, but it's essentially the, I would say, uh, maybe the Western version uh, or like Western answer to something like 
the Russian Wagner Group. Uh, we'll be talking about that. But first, uh, David, how are you doing today? Fine. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I, I should say, uh, not to be contrary, but the Mozart Group is actually not the Western version of Wagner. Uh, it's a very different entity, uh, notably because people are not armed, they're not fighting, um, and uh, they are not, unlike uh, Wagner, going around and committing blatant human rights violations and uh, unspeakable atrocities. Um, so very, di very different creatures. Yeah, yeah, my, my apologies. Uh, that was poor wording on my part. I, 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 I guess I just meant in terms of... Um, you know, the, the sort of naming, like the Mozart versus Wagner, but. No, I understand. It gets thrown around and, you know, uh, it's hard to keep all those German composers uh, separate, uh, you know, when, once you start thinking in musical terms. <laughs> so, um, David, if you could, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background and how you became interested in researching uh, the issue of private military companies and similar related issues. Well, back in the day, uh, the day being uh, in the, from the late 80s to the late 90s, I was an analyst with a nonprofit group in Washington, D.C., the uh, Center for Defense Information, um, which uh, no longer exists as an independent group, but in its time uh, had a lot of punch to it. And my mandate as a research analyst there was basically the entire third world. Uh, and in terms of functional issues, I was dealing with things like US arms sales uh, um, and everything else that was happening in third and fourth world uh, countries. Um, and around about the late 80s, uh, because one of, the one of the good things about CDI was that it had one of the best um, libraries devoted to uh, uh, military affairs, national security affairs around the world, unlike a lot of other groups. Uh, so um, constant inflow of information. This was a sort of pre-digital age. I mean, we didn't even have an internet uh, back then. And uh, But anyway, perusing the literature as I did every day, I, you know, in obscure publications, the sort of newsletters uh, from a publication like Jane's, the uh, overall British group, which has a multitude of publications from Jane's fighting ships to, you know, Jane's infantry systems and in a near infinity of newsletters. And, you know, I started seeing these references uh, to a group in Africa, which at the time was Executive Outcomes, um, founded by a guy named Simon Mann, uh, no, not Simon Mann, excuse me, even Barlow. Uh, who had been a former uh, South African soldier, worked in special forces, Civil Cooperation Bureau, et cetera. And basically what he had done, uh, which was really novel at the time, uh, was to basically form a private group. And the emphasis on private, no government forces, uh, entirely volunteers, uh, many of them former South African Defense Force members, uh, uh, both white and black, uh, and uh, they formed a private fighting force which was available for hire by governments only, not by any rebel groups, and they were first hired uh, by the Angolan government uh, to fight off the UNITA rebel forces headed by Jonas Savimbi, and they took back oil fields that Savimbi forces controlled, which was a 
huge asset for the Angolan government because of all the money they got out of that port, which, you know, exported oil, among other things. They subsequently fought on behalf of the government in Sierra Leone against the murderous uh, rebel group, the RUF, Revolutionary United Front, which was noted at the time for its atrocities in terms of um, uh, cutting off people's limbs, you know, and going up to someone and saying, you know, like, what do you want to lose, an arm or a leg? And if so, you know, where do you want us to make the cut? Uh, and they beat them back, uh, forced them back to the negotiating table. Uh, they were subsequently pressured uh, by outside forces, both the United Nations and the United States, to leave uh, Sierra Leone. Um, they subsequently did, and then the government uh, subsequently collapsed, and there was more fighting for years to come. The point is that this was an extremely effective private sector fighting force. They were not mercenaries. They were um, given... Um, Basically, they were integrated with the existing military forces, such as they were in Sierra Leone and um, more uh, professional military forces in Angola. And being part of a regular military force automatically makes you a non-mercenary. Um, but they uh, had set the model. They were, to uh, paraphrase a phrase of another war, the, mo the mother of all private military and security contracting groups that which have subsequently been created and come down through time. And the guy who founded it, um, uh, even Barlow, still exists. Uh, many years later, uh, due to pressure from outside forces and vilification and smear and disinformation campaigns against them, they subsequently, um, well, I don't want to say folded, but they just ended their existence. Uh, Barlow has subsequently resurrected EO. It now exists once again. Um, but, you know, it had its people on the ground. It had an integrated air wing, you know, the attack helicopters. They had great intel, um, uh, highly skilled uh, in um, battlefield tactics. So really, uh, unlike a lot of today's private security, firms that people think about, like Blackwater when it existed, which is essentially a reactive defensive force, EO was a fighting force. Um, big difference there, uh, you know, in terms of what you're doing with guns and militarily speaking. Uh, it's important to talk about EO simply because, not only because of what they did, but because of the concept that they pioneered that, hey, you don't have to wait on the international community through the United Nations, which may or more likely may not do something depending upon the whims of nations and how much you're willing to actually commit in terms of resources and people and equipment to set up a United Nations, you know, peacekeeping force, you know, which then may do something useful or may not. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to think of this today, but this was really such an unprecedented idea at the time because the idea of non-state military forces actually doing combat. And I don't, you know, and I mean combat, not being, you know, uh, perimeter guards, you know, around a facility, but going out in the field and being in combat uh, was just unthinkable because for centuries now, ever since the Treaty of Westphalia and the setting up of nation states in 
the principle of inviolability of various nations that you, you know, uh, that you don't really, as a rule, use your military forces uh, uh, to, uh, to fight unless you absolutely have to. We have become so accustomed to the idea that the only legitimate use of military force is by the state. As, as the German sociology, sociologist Max Weber said, uh, you know, the paramount sign of a effective government is its monopoly on uh, the use of force and violence, you know. So here was a non-government force, you know, which sort of had a monopoly on the battlefield of doing that thing. And it was just inconceivable to so many people, analysts, observers, scholars, that it was a huge thing at the time. And it's still, and that concept is, you know, it's still creating waves. Uh, but subsequently, all sorts of groups uh, began forming. Uh, first in the Balkans, uh, there was a small group in the United States composed of retired officers, MPRI, which uh, went into the Balkans and did training of the Croatians, for example, and they were able to launch a uh, counteroffensive Operation Storm, I believe it was called back in the 90s, and uh, pushed the Serbians back out of Croatia due to their training. These people just trained. Uh, they didn't fight, but their training was extraordinarily effective. Uh, there were firms like Dyncor still around, uh, which was big, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, probably most of your listeners are familiar with a firm like Blackwater, uh, you know, and everything that happened uh, to it and what it did, uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but, there's a but there's a myriad of these firms around the world now. Many countries have looked at this and decided, hey, you know, maybe we should be doing this. You know, Russia has Wagner, uh, China's been setting up country uh, companies, Turkey's thinking about it, Israel has long had uh, its firms, uh, um, which have provided uh, people who do both training and fighting, uh, I could go on, but uh, I think you get the idea. So that's a very popular concept, and they have pioneered, uh, every time you think that they've exhausted uh, a specific conflict or war zone and there's nothing left for them to get out of in terms of contract because, you know, maybe there's peace or the fighting at society, there's not a need, need for it anymore. Something else popped up. Uh, when Iraq and Afghanistan were dying down, we had Somali pirates and all of a sudden there was this uh, influx of companies uh, pioneering the idea of providing maritime security forces, armed guards aboard ship, uh, which was a huge thing because of all sorts of insurance and liability issues and in terms of, you know, who's actually got control of these guys with the guns and, you know, where can they keep their guns, etc. cetera. Uh, but the point is, uh, they're just about everywhere in every uh, conflict and war zone you can think of. My analogy, which I came to shortly after I first started reaching, uh, researching this, is that if people recall the movie Alien with Sigour Sigourney Weaver, uh, you know, uh, the face hugger clamps onto somebody's face and then it moves into the body and then its uh, innards are intertwined with your uh, uh, digestive tract and you can't remove it, you know, short of killing the patient. And the modern PMSC industry is so intertwined with the national security apparatus and the various uh, departments of defense or war de departments of 
uh, various nations that you know you'd have you basically have to obliterate all those departments to get rid of them because you know private military and security contracting is not just about guys with guns it's also providing logistic services it's uh, you know uh, Iraq was a great example of that. You know, you had outsiders uh, providing the food, providing the lubricants, petroleum, oil. Uh, they were running the coffee shops on 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 base. Uh, they were providing the recreation. Uh, you know, they were doing uh, probably well over uh, fifty percent of the. Uh, combat service support and significant amounts of actual combat support. They weren't doing indirect fire, uh, uh, thankfully, but you know, sometimes uh, they did come to uh, the aid and rescue of regular military forces. So it was very difficult, especially in Iraq, sometimes to see where the military ended and the armed security uh, began. I just had two more things I wanted to get into before shifting uh, to the Mozart group. I guess the first is uh, your approach to this uh, topic may be a little bit different than how some people have tried talking about private military contractors. Um, and basically what I'm getting at when I say that is uh, you don't use the term mercenary. So maybe you could explain why you avoid using that term when talking about private military contractors. And also, if these aren't mercenary groups, what are the potential you know, cons? If there was a pro and cons look at this, what are the potential pro and cons of um, PMCs. Well, I'm I'm usually on the other side from the boosters and the advocates of the private military and security contracting industry, or as they like to, or as they like to call themselves, the peace operations industry. That's the euphemism they came up with a couple of decades ago, and you know it's, that makes it's, it sound that, a lot nicer. <laughs> oh, of course, absolutely. You know, like you know, uh, we you know we're heroes. Uh, you know, we're we're on the side of. Uh, goodness and peace, and who can argue with that? Um, the pros, as they generally articulate, is that, hey, you know, you don't have the cost of a regular standing military. You can, you know, we're sort of like Mission Impossible. You can task us to do an in individual thing. We get, you know, we go and recruit the people. Um, you know, we uh, go out and um, get the equipment necessary to ca carry out the mission. Uh, when it's done, we're gone, we're disbanded. You don't have to worry about uh, pensions. You don't have to worry about uh, paying disability if some of our people get injured, which is actually not quite true, which actually is not quite true. Uh, there is a law uh, actually, which uh, on the books in the uh, U.S. legal system, uh, the Defense Space Act, essentially, which does which does cover them uh, if they get injured, which means ultimately the government and taxpayers are responsible, uh, at least for the hospital hospitalization. Although they won't, you know, like get long term care at the Veterans Administration. Um, but you know that you know that has always been their argument, which is unlike you know the regular military, which is a wonderful. Uh, behemoth, which can do everything, you know, from patrolling uh, and setting up ambushes on the ground in nuclear war, but you know, it it's hard to move, it's hard to get, uh, it's it's hard to turn, it's hard to set up to do discrete different things, and that's where we come in in the spirit of Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan back in the '80s. You know, you can outsource to us. You know, we are the privatized mechanism by by which we 
uh, enable your military uh, to be more agile, to be more effective. So they would say that they are a force enabler. Those are their words. Uh, my words is that um, for the past 30 plus years now, uh, since Executive Outcomes uh, originally started operating in Africa, we have had all sorts of groups, both on the logistics reconstruction side, as well as the armed security side. And, and the problem is, is that it is true. They're not mercenaries. Uh, there are discrete laws uh, on various books, both internationally and nationally. Uh, the most common one and most respected one is the one embodied uh, in the additional protocol one uh, to the Geneva Conventions, Article 47 lays out six criteria, all of which have to be uh, cumulatively um, uh, fulfilled in order to be declared a mercenary. And I'm not going to uh, recite them here. People can look it up. But let's just say any, you know, any half decent first year law student can look at those criteria, you know, and then explain in a courtroom. You know, clearly, Your Honor, these people are not mercenaries, you know, according to the law, and here it is, and, you know, they're just not. So, uh, so in I, other words, just in, in pure, like, um, international law terms, you know, we, we shouldn't be throwing around this term if we're looking in, in purely legal terms. The, pro the problem is, is that, go, going back to what I was saying earlier, we're, we're so accustomed to the use of force being conducted by nations, and we have a whole system you know, dating back to the Treaty of Westphalia, where all laws are basically dealing with force being used by national militaries. You know, we have Geneva Conventions, we have international humanitarian law, we have the Libra Law, you know, Nuremberg Code, etc. cetera. Uh, but the only thing we have for non-military forces, you know, are these various international and regional definitions of mercenaries. And if they're not mercenaries, as they almost always clearly are not, according to which definition you're using, then you're sort of in this, I don't even want to call it a gray area, I want to call it a dark area, because there's really, uh, when it first started, there was almost no law on the books uh, to govern them. Uh, now, there have been some laws created by various nations, including the United States, uh, you know, when they looked at what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and they said, you know, my God, uh, you know, what can we do when these got, you know, we hired these guys, but we don't have any mechanisms set up for, to supervise them, uh, to ensure accountability, uh, to do proper oversight. Uh, the United States uh, military uh, did modify uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, uh, which now uh, gives them, um, uh, shall we say, uh, theoretically, the ability to prosecute them, uh, you know, in times of war. The, pro the problem with Iraq, of course, is that it was not a time of war for the U.S. government. Uh, government. It was not a declared war. It was an expeditionary operation. So it was not like we were attacked at Her Pearl Harbor, you know, and we, de we declare that we're at war. So that alone makes the UCMJ uh, somewhat inapplicable. And uh, there's also the same problem uh, that, you know, it's hard to find prosecutors who are up to speed on it. And uh, it's also hard to find the will to expend money and resources on this when they got so many other things. 
there is also another law um, passed which enables civilian prosecutors to go after UCMJ, say if it's headquartered uh, in the district where uh, the district attorney is. But again, it raises the same problem. I mean, what's in it for a prosecuting district attorney to try and go after a company which may be in their area, but conducted something which is five, 6,000 miles overseas, you know, uh, the resources they have to expend in order to do that is mind boggling to the average prosecutor's office, you know, and unless it's absolutely a heinous crime, you know, which everybody in the world is focused on, uh, this sort of square in Iraq comes to mind, uh, you know, they're just not going to do it because they're figuring what's in it for them. And the answer is nothing. So then, uh, just to reiterate, what for you are the cons um, when it comes to private military contractors? Because I know, you, you, as you said, you're not really a booster of um, PMC. So, so what are your sort of main well, criticisms? I, uh, you know, my the con the cons are that this, you know, despite decades of effort and acknowledgement that you've got people uh, potentially with guns, you know, potentially. Uh, doing wrong things. And of course, the classic example of that is Blackwater shooting Iraqi civilians at near Sur Square in Baghdad back in 2007 and killing about uh, 17, uh, not counting the wounded, you know, and, it, and it's been clear in the years since that, you know, their rationale for doing it, that they were un, under fire was bogus. Um, so, you know, what, what do you do to ensure accountability. And it's been the source of endless articles. You can read any number of uh, pieces and law journals, for example, uh, debating this and, you know, how to create something. And, you know, and, and to their credit, they've, they've tried. But, you know, if you look for an office within, say, the Department of Defense, which is dedicated to monitoring, um, the activities of private military and security contracting companies, uh, you won't find it. In fact, the Pentagon did have an office uh, a few years ago um, for some years. It was headed by a guy, Chris Meyer, a retired Army officer, uh, who, was try you know, who was trying to bring greater transparency to it. And they ultimately just terminated the office uh, because they had better things to do with their money evidently. And so, you know, that office no longer exists. And, you know, and, and, and the biggest con to me is, is simply you still don't have a dedicated entity. You can call it an office in the Pentagon. You can call it an out, you could put it in an outside agency. I worked a year for SIGGER, the Special Inspector General for Rock Reconstruction, which was monitoring all the reconstruction activity of, of companies in Iraq, including security contractors. In their final report, when they terminated their existence back in 2013, you know, they did advocate um, for an office to be set up that would work, you know, jointly with DOD and state and agencies like the Agency for International Development, which was also, also heavily involved in reconstruction, you know, which would sort of game plan the activity, you know, the activities of all companies, including security and military contractors, you know, before you actually went in to a country and uh, it got no traction. It's not been established. So, 
you know, they're, they're reluctant to do it uh, after all this time. And I, I, you know, they know they need to do it, but the political will is not there. And so these, op these firms, even though there are laws on the books, still continue to operate in a regulatory vacuum would be the way I put it. And also the, the second thing I was going to ask you, and maybe there's nothing more that we can add to it, but um, since you mentioned Blackwater, um, of course, Eric, Eric Prince, uh, just for younger listeners, um, why, why did Blackwater, um, why does it matter? And um, for people that just need a refresher on it, if they're younger in my audience. Why was Black, why did Blackwater matter? Yeah, I'm saying I'm saying well, why is Blackwater so notorious uh, if I have younger listeners that are unfamiliar with it uh, that didn't necessarily grow up with the Iraq war? Well, um, Blackwater was notorious or infamous uh, for various incidents that happened to its employees or that its employees committed in the course of their operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, bear in mind that Blackwater and Eric Prince uh, who was and still is an ambitious man, uh, was notable because Blackwater in, in many ways was a sort of integrated firm. Uh, they not only provided contractors to provide security for diplomats like Paul Bremer, who was essentially our proconsul in Iraq in the early days of the US occupation there uh, before we supposedly turned the uh, reins of government back over to Iraqis. Uh, so he provided security for him. Um, he did a very good job. He, you know, he was never attacked, ne uh, never got hurt. But they're, uh, you know, they were notorious for kind of running, running roughshod on the roads. And anybody who got in their way, you know, had better get the hell out of the way, or they'd be run over or potentially shot, shot at, even even if they uh, weren't combatants, but just made the mistake of driving on the roads, and all of a sudden this convoy is barreling down the road and they don't know any better get out of the way next thing you know yeah uh guns are being trained on them or potentially being shot uh then four of their employees who were on a convoy delivering kitchen equipment to Fallujah back in about 2003 were ambushed uh people might remember uh two of their employees they were all uh burned and two of the corpses were hung from a bridge and infamous photo uh, and of course, that was a big hullabaloo because by contract, actually, because this was part of what I wrote in the book, uh, by contract, the people in that convoy, specifically the employees who were supposed to be uh, defending it against an attack, uh, were supposed to be provided certain things which they didn't have. They were supposed to have a tail gunner in their armored vehicle, for example. They didn't have it. They were supposed to have a certain level of armored protection in the vehicle. Uh, they didn't have it. Uh, they were supposed to have an intel brief prior to uh, setting out on the mission. Uh, they didn't have it. So, uh, you know, not only were the employees killed, but I would maintain they were killed uh, due to the negligence of a company, uh, which by contract was supposed to provide certain things, which they did not. And since Eric Prince has always you know, maintained uh, that he's some kind of uh, uh, military genius, which is kind of a bold claim for a man who spent exactly uh, two years active duty, which is like half of what I spent. Uh, 
And one of those years was basically floating around on a ship in the med. So uh, he's got very little claim uh, to be talking about his military prowess and uh, understanding of the way military battlefields work, which I thought I should put out there because it's a common claim he makes and he's almost never called on it. Uh, he just goes, hey, I'm a former Navy SEAL and everybody's supposed to go, oh, well, woof. Uh, anyway, a little, little bit of a tangent, but uh, the the point is, uh, that's one of the things that people uh, should remember Blackwater for. The other thing, of course, as I've already mentioned, was the uh, shooting of all these Iraqi civilians at uh, uh, Main Roundabout in Bagdor, Baghdad, Nisour Square, back in 2007. Uh, they were in a diplomatic convoy uh, returning from a meeting. Uh, they claimed they heard shots and uh, felt they were under attack and they stopped and returned fire and just killed all these civilians in, in various cars, uh, 17 uh, uh, killed and, you know, including a mother and uh, young men, uh, not to mention the wounded. And as I said before, the claim was bogus. The FBI determined uh, that. Um, so, uh, four people, uh, after many years, uh, were sent to prison, uh, but they were freed by Trump uh, when he was in office. So um, I would say justice was never really done in that case. So there are lots of examples on the book of Blackwater, not only in Iraq, but also in Afghanistan, acting, as many people said, uh, like cowboys uh, and exhibiting uh, a degree of uh, recklessness. Um, now, not all firms are like that. Many firms uh, are quite professional. British firms have a good re reputation of not being cowboys. For example, uh, many firms employ, uh, yeah, at least in the beginning of, of, of war wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, they got highly professional people, uh, ex-British uh, Special Air Service, uh, ex-special forces, Delta Force operators in the U.S., Rangers, etc. But the problem uh, after a few years became is that, you know, you kind of exhausted all those people and then you started reaching down uh, and getting uh, less and less qualified people, uh, which meant uh, potentially more and more reckless people. Uh, there were probably people um, who gained psychological profiles who never should have been there in the first place. I wrote about a few of them in, in my book. Uh, so, you know, that's a common problem. You know, uh, people are, you know, uh, they need people. Uh, they're willing to pay high salaries. Uh, they're not too picky about who they get. And once they're operating in the field, they're not too picky uh, about doing oversight. The U.S. government will require oversight as a part of the contracts and say you have to report, written report on this or that, you know, in terms of how do you maintain your guns, how do you provide security for your guns, how do you, uh, 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 what kind of training do you do for your people. Problem with that is that uh, unless you have a representative on the ground who conducts inspections, uh, which doesn't happen uh, very often, there's not much uh, incentive to really do that. And in the early days of Iraq and Afghanistan, you had contracting officers or contracting officer representatives who were juggling. They might have had dozens of contracts, you know, which total value of which was in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, you know, and maybe they have one, two 
possibly free people on the ground as their representatives who are dependent on the companies themselves to provide transportation to their various compounds in the field. You know, ah, sorry, can't do it. Uh, the sandstorm coming up, you know, won't, won't be able to provide a helicopter for two weeks. Uh, you know, and that kind of stuff still goes on. Uh, so uh, you, and they didn't, you know, it just didn't have the people. They did gin up uh, their schools to provide more people. So they do have potentially more people now to provide oversight. How well trained they are and ratio of contracts to person is still debatable. Uh, I would give them credit for trying and, and, and being a bit better than they were. It's still not nearly enough. So then moving on to uh, the Mozart group, if people are unfamiliar, how would you, uh, I guess, describe the Mozart group and um, how it came to be, maybe its origins? Well, like everybody else, um, since the war in Ukraine began, I uh, had seen various news reports on their activities. I didn't have any greater insight than anybody else, but apparently it was a group which had been co-founded by this former U.S. Marine, uh, Andy Milburn, Andrew Milburn, who had a very distinguished career, originally from Britain, but he joined the U.S. military, worked, worked his way up the ranks, uh, retired with the honorable rank of lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, had been in charge of uh, MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations Command, uh, before he retired back in 2019, I think it was. And uh, yeah, I think he uh, wrote, a, wrote a book, possibly a memoir, uh, you know, looking back at his military career. He had gone to Ukraine uh, in the early months of war. Uh, he was gonna write about it for this one newsletter, newsletter called Task and Purpose. And, uh, but then after about a month, um, he basically said, screw this. And he co-founded this group um, with a, another uh, former Marine, a guy named Andrew Milburn, uh, uh, who didn't have the same uh, act, long active military career that Milburn did, but he had been Marines. He had been subsequent, you know, he had like four years active in menus and reserves. And he also finally retired out of the re reserves with the rank of lieutenant colonel and became a businessman. He had been in Kiev now, I think, for about 30 years and had gone, you know, set up many different uh, companies. Uh, I think his space company was basically doing sort of online promotions of uh, Ukrainian businesses and Ukrainian governments. But, but by all accounts, uh, you know, decent businessman, you know, brought in a lot of income uh, for his companies, uh, you know, didn't have any reputation doing anything bad and they both you know felt like well you know ukraine's under attack you know maybe we can do something you know and so they had set up this company this uh, is um it, because i i don't recall if you said his name or if you make i uh, uh andrew bain right uh uh the businessman is andrew bain and, right and then milburn is the other one milburn sort of the public face of it the the um guy who was actually everywhere online, you know, talking about their missions in Ukraine. And they were getting a lot of good press because, you know, unlike, say, other humanitarian groups uh, you know, who also rescue uh, people and bring aid, you know, they were bringing aid like all these other groups, but they were going to the edge of the fighting. They were going and extracting civilians in towns that were still under fire, uh, bringing out elderly people, children, 
uh, you know, who were basically left abandoned, you know, and that's a laudable thing to do. Uh, I give them credit, you know, the other groups don't do that because as, you know, uh, volunteer groups made up of civilians, they have strict rules, you know, and going into zone, you know, much as they might like to, going into zones you know, that are being shelled, you know, is not part of their mandate. And, you know, in many cases would be against rules that they operate under. But this group was doing that, and, and that was great. Uh, but that was only, you know, but that was only part of their activities. You know, the other part, um, which also got a lot of press and is perhaps more opaque, is that they were also training various Ukrainian uh, military and security forces in basic um, military skills. Uh, you know, basically how to operate your rifle, you know, how to shoot your rifle, how to shoot your rifle on the run, how to uh, set up ambushes, how to defuse mines, how to do small patrolling uh, tactics. Now, they claimed that they were training um, a battalion's worth of people, which is about 600 people every two weeks. Uh, you know, and maybe it's possible to train 600 people in two weeks in a few skills, but if you ask any regular, uh, you know, career uh, soldier or say a Marine, you know, you say, hey, you know, uh, would you be able to train a, a battalion and all the skills that they need need to do uh, need to do to go out in the battlefield in two weeks? They look at you and say, you should me, man. You know, <laughs> it's just not done now. To you know, to be to be fair about it, or to bend over backward, you know. Neither, as far as I can tell, Mil Milburn or Bain was claiming, you know, that they trained a battalion in all the skills that a battalion is supposed to have to be able to operate effectively, autonomously on the battlefield of the battalion. They never made that claim. They just claim, you know, we're training various people in various skills. Okay, uh, better than nothing uh, might, you know, might help keep keep the guy alive, you know, and, you know, if they found it useful, uh it's not really a problem if you if the Ukrainian government uh, isn't complaining about it. You know, I'm not going to complain about it from here, from thousands of miles away. Although, I, you know, I do think you know uh, they probably don't have everything they would need to ha need to have. You know, as a regular military battalion. But you know, it's a chaotic sa situation. If it saves your life, uh, you know, better than what they had. Sure, uh, it's a good thing. Uh, the problem, you know, the problem. The problems occur um, is that administratively, Mozart was set up as a limited liability company. It's a business. Uh, it was there to make a profit, uh, uh, according to subsequent documents, which we'll get to later. You know, uh, they're very, you know, vain uh, when he drew up the drafting documents was, was quite clear. But Milburn was going around online, you know, on the social on their social, various social media channels saying, you know, please, you know, please don't donate, you know, we're doing all this charitable work, we're risking our lives, you know, we, we need money. And of course they do. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, these various um, online uh, contribution, you know, click here, you know, send in your money uh, was going to accounts that he controlled ostensibly under the umbrella of this so-called task force sunflower which is was the whole um sort of overall mechanism uh 
for holding all these monies, which was supposedly going to all this uh, help pay the guys doing the charitable work and getting them the resources they need to carry it out. Uh, but but nobody really knows what happened to that uh, money. Uh, Bain, uh, well, you know, wasn't seeing it, you know, on, on the books. You know, there were no accounts he could do oversight on. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Milburn was getting paid a, a pretty good salary, $35,000 a month. And also, as it, as it turned out, subsequently in, uh, I guess I should mention it now, the lawsuit uh, or the complaint, the legal complaint that was fired, filed by Bain back on January 10th, uh, basically uh, seeking to uh, oust Milburn from his role as uh, CEO of Mozart, uh, because not only was he controlling, his, uh, you know, soliciting money for something which uh, uh, wasn't um, going to the things it was supposed to be going. Uh, he had also supposedly been making uh, payments to a woman that he was supposedly romantically linked with in Kiev and like paying her 90,000 uh, bucks a year. Uh, I mean, I would invite people to go and look at the uh, lawsuit itself. You can still find it. Uh, oh, what is the name of that? Uh, uh, online archive, which basically archives everything uh, online. Um, it's there, it's also linked in the article I wrote. You can just link on it there, uh, open it up there. Uh, but after this complaint was filed, uh, basically Mozart uh, folded. There's been a back and forth, he said, he said, uh, running battle online, it's in the hands of the lawyers now. Uh, Mozart has stopped its activities. Uh, Milburn has claimed that even the work has temporarily stopped. You know, he hopes to be back uh, continuing to work somehow. Uh, I should mention at this point, however, that one of the contradictory complaints or one, one of the things that came to light in the course of writing this article, uh, and I didn't include it in my article because there haven't been any corroborating sources thus far, which is not to mean that the article is wrong. I just want to uh, get to it here, hang on. Um, there's this guy, Jeffrey Carr, who's sort of a cybersecurity specialist. He has his own Substack, um, and he's a big supporter of Milburn, but he wrote this two-part series. Uh, and in the first part, uh, which contains the information I wanted to say, He's basically saying that Andrew Bain has ties to Russia and the Taliban uh, and is engaged in activities which he considers to be tantamount to war profiteering. Let me just read from the article here. Um, Andrew K. Bain, a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer, only attained the rank of lieutenant colonel when he left active duty, has been living in Ukraine since 1992 and wants to sell his 51% share of Mozart Group to the Taliban, according to a voice message that came into my position, this alongside his new role with a secretive Afghan company looking to score lucrative logistics and reconstruction contracts in Ukraine with the help of a former US ambassador and some Ukrainian insiders, plus his documented affiliations with numerous Russian figures will most likely make him a person of interest for Ukrainians and US authorities I made a partial transcript of recording below. 
The full recording has been turned over to the Directorate of Intelligence for the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine for further investigation, and it will also be provided to certain agencies of the U.S. government. I w- and here's the bit supposedly from the voice recording. <clears throat> I was in Poland. I met with Maine. I met with the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, and I met with the Afghan billionaires, and we're putting a company together called Victorian Logistics Services based out of Poland, operating in Bulgaria, Romania, and concentrating on Ukraine. We're providing everything from fuel, armored vehicles, generators, all logistics, and reconstruction of the infrastructure. And also, we've got an armed security license for Ukraine. Apparently, it's the only armed license that's getting issued. Issued. Please keep this to yourself because we're not advertising it. It won't be going on any of our brochures or anything like that or the website. However, we can tell people that we're going to be armed when we have a face-to-face with them. We've also got licenses for any port where we can't have any of our cargo searched. So again, we're literally at the highest of fucking levels. The ex-U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan is the chairman is a chairman to our company board of directors. So I'll, I'll obviously be running the operation aside of it, continuing on. But the main thing is fuel. I've touched base with Bain again, and Bain's all over the fuel side of things. And he actually asked, between me and you, please keep this confidential. He actually asked if the Afghans wanted to buy his share of Mozart yesterday, and he wanted it bought out for $2.5 million so he could concentrate on logistics. Obviously, that's between me and you. Don't be repeating that. So Andrew Bain, who observed what Andy Milburn and his SOF veteran friends, veteran friends were doing by training up Ukrainian forces in mid-March, leveraged his time and business con- connections in, in Ukraine to take a 51% share of a company that he now wants to be rid of for a bigger, better deal as a war profiteer in bed with the Taliban. And there's more going into the links of his companies. Uh, But that was the article by Jeffrey Carr. Now, as I said, I didn't include it or cite from it because so far I've had uh, no other corroborating sources. But I I mention it now here because I think uh, there's something to it. And the reason I think there is something to it is that A, A, Bain has always been very upfront that he founded or co-founded Mozart as a limited liability company, meaning it's a for-profit company, uh, legally, a legal, that is the mandate of a limited liability company to make a profit. And, you know, doing charitable work is nice, but it doesn't make a profit. Uh, I also learned um, from another source, and I have to be very careful about what I'm going to say because I, the information I'm about to refer to was gotten under a vow of confidentiality. Uh, but let us just say I, I've re- I, I have firsthand seen the receipts on this, meaning I've seen the actual emails referring to what I'm about to mention. So let's just say, let's just put it this way. Uh, it's very clear that the limited liability side of Mozart. David, you cut out there. Areas of the world. You cut out there for a second. You said it was very clear and then it cut out. Could you repeat that? All right, let me re- let me restart. Um, it seems very clear that uh, 
the business for profit side of Mozart was looking to other areas of the world aside uh, from what I was just referring to in this Jeffrey Carr article in his Substack, uh, talking about Taliban, Afghanistan, et cetera. Uh, I have seen emails uh, from a former official of Mozart to a source in an altogether different continent looking uh, basically to get together with this one person uh, um, who is sort of legendary and known all about the world, wanted to get his guidance on expanding and in, in Mozart into an entirely different part of the world uh, to do what they would, uh, what the Mozart, former Mozart official would refer to as their uh, unique value added edge of being able to provide training in a sort of military version of doctors without borders uh, to an area of the world which is uh, still riven with conflicts. Uh, and that's about all I can say about it other than the fact that um, that having having read the emails, I would say that it's kind of a presumptuous move on the part of a Mozart to assume, that there aren't people in that part of the world who aren't um, capable of doing the kind of necessary training that Mozart wants to provide. It's, yeah, the Mozart people are more like, you know, let us, the great white Buanas, uh, come to your rescue uh, and, you know, and help you out in your time of need. And, uh, you know, the person who received this emails um, was basically saying, yeah, thanks, no thanks, uh, don't really need you. Um, but I mean, it, it seems clear that it just confirmed that the motivation uh, of Mozart was to was to turn uh, the Mozart group away from its uh, humanitarian charitable uh, uh, slash rescue civilians into a regular for profit. You know, let's make money uh, by uh, a. Um, doing military training in other parts of the world, or alternatively, uh, let's just uh, terminate Mozart as a group and uh, let's focus on providing armed security for all the logistics firms that are going to be involved in Ukraine once the war ends and doing reconstruction, which would be just like the European version of Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, real quick, just to clarify, so you, you had mentioned Task Force um, Sunflower. That's the the NGO that um, Milburn well, was affiliated with, and it's it's that that's a five hundred one c three. Mozart though is is for profit. Exactly right. Task Force Sunflower is supposedly where the money was going to aid Mozart in its efforts to rec rescue civilians. All the money going to that, or that has gone to that, is being held somewhere uh, by Milburn, where where it is and how much it is, who knows. And then, uh, so you mentioned the accusations made against Bain, uh, but uh, what, what are some of the accusations that Bain uh, accuses of, of Milburn in, in the lawsuit? I know uh, he accuses Milburn of going after paid military contracts in Armenia. Uh, what, what are some of the other serious charges he makes? Uh, well, if you look at the uh, lawsuit, um, hang on here. Okay, well, the most the most serious charge, of course, was uh, 
taking actions, carrying on various activities in the name of the company, which provide which require prior approval and permits issued by U.S. State Department in compliance with international traffic and arms regulations, uh, ITAR implemented pursuant to the Arms Export Control Act. Milburn failed to secure the necessary approvals prior to taking such action. And when notified by the U.S. Department of State of alleged violations of ITAR, an attorney was retained to respond to the claims Milburn unilaterally and without explanation terminated the services of the attorney responding to the allegation, failed to engage substitute counsel, counsel, and as a result, failed to meet the required response deadline set by the government. This matter is still open and remains unresolved, creating significant potential liability to the company. Um, let's just pause here for a moment. Every company uh, uh, which goes and do some kind of military activity, and it doesn't just have to be guys out there with weapons. It also includes providing military services like training. Uh, anytime you do something like that, uh, whether it was in Iraq or in Afghanistan or now in Ukraine, you have to be licensed to do it under this body of regulations internationally known as the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, uh, ITAR for short. If you don't have a license, you're potentially uh, operating illegally when someone finally gets the time and the will to look at what you're doing and say, hey, you don't have a license, uh, stop it. Uh, you know, and you know, very least you'll, uh, you'll, you'll be fined or potentially be prosecuted, uh, you know, go to jail, or go to prison. Uh, in, Mil in Milburn, uh, evidently didn't have the license for training the various Ukrainians, uh, whether in the National Guard or in the Army or state security forces uh, uh, for, you know, and as a part of doing that training, you'd have to provide them with weapons and he wasn't licensed to do so. So that's a huge uh, actual or potential legal liability and uh, terminating a lawyer who has been hired to deal with that is an egregious no-no. That's, that's the main charge. You're also other charges like using company vehicles for personal use by driving uh, from Ukraine to London uh, for personal uh, business, abandoning the, vehicle, abandoning the, abandoning the vehicle, uh, returning to Ukraine, taking action to recover it, uh, sending caustic messages to retired former commanding general, general of the Special Operations Command, SOC Europe, who declined to participate as a member or manager of Mozart Group, uh, promoting himself as a selfless volunteer helping Ukraine, but misleading to believe, misleading journalists to believe Mozart Group is a charitable entity when it is not. Uh, insisting on personal compensation payments exceeding $35,000 per month from company accounts, which were not formally approved by the members and not accounting to the company for donated food uh, funds received, which were uh, received in personal or other accounts controlled by him, uh, threatening and harassing private business all, all, uh, owner who volunteered a newly refurbished apartment for Mozart Group at request of... Uh, the plaintiff, where Milburn heard, held numerous late night par parties on the property, allowed others to live there, uh, et cetera. I mean, people can read the lawsuit. Um, you know, there's about uh, 15 discrete different charges uh, going 
including the ones I just read. But as I said, you know, the biggest no-no was uh, not getting the license, doing nothing to get the license, obstructing efforts uh, uh, to get the license. You know, uh, you just don't do those sort of things. I mean, every company which is, you know, which ventures into the realm of providing military services, including military training, uh, knows rule 101, uh, get a license or you're screwed. Before we start wrapping up, um, what are some other major points maybe that we haven't covered that you think uh, listeners should know about? And and what do you hope, what do you think should concern listeners about the case of the rise and fall of the Mozart group? Well, I think it is concerning because it is consistent um, with the sort of arc of companies uh, dating, dating back subsequent to the rise of executive companies, which is that every time there's a conflict, uh, there's always people, A, rushing to make a profit, which is, you know, maybe sad, morally reprehensible, but uh, is inevitable, you know. Real real quick, um, not to interrupt you, but I love how you start out the uh, Responsible Statecraft article uh, saying, you know, the war in Ukraine is confirming the truth of the uh, fictional Star Trek universe characters, the Ferengi uh, role of acquisition number 34, war is good for business. Yes, and yeah, it's just a sad reality. It's always, it's always good for business. Peace is good for, good for business too, uh, which is next rule in the Ferengi rules of acquisition. But nevertheless, uh, there are always people seeking to make a profit out of it. Uh, you know, and the problem uh, for people, uh, you know, trying to do the right thing is, how do you create a regulatory environment that allows companies actually to do something useful at at the same time, prevent them from obscenely profiting and, uh, uh, you know, doing less on the humanitarian side and uh, squaring money for your personal profit. You know, the problem with Mozart is that it's consistent with the history of all sorts of groups ranging from, big multinational contractors think of KBR on the logistics side uh, to DynCor, you know, which has been involved on the security side, which is, you know, A, uh, they're not all that interested in accountability and oversight. Bigger firms do it better now because it's written into the contracts and they know that governments are looking more closely at them. But the smaller groups are still rushing in, uh, seeking to make a profit, um, and uh, are, are sometimes loosely organized or loosely administered, uh, not properly overseen. Uh, and there's not a whole lot that can be done about it legally, administratively, uh, or from a regulatory perspective. You know, they don't, they go and they may do good things and people are saying, boy, uh, great stuff, keep it up, uh, you know, and, getting contributions and you know you can't i i guess you know that's one problem the other problem is that you can't mix you can't mix charity and military functions together under one roof you just can't you know there are people who do charity work who do it all the time um you know uh there's nothing specially a value added about former uh, special operations types going in and extracting people. You can love them for their bravery, but you could also get, you know, civilian groups to do that. 
who do who have been doing that for decades uh um maybe change the rules a little bit to you know to allow and allow them to do things that they wouldn't normally do but you know keep the military training out of it you create a separate company for it uh acknowledge that they're there to make a profit by by doing those things and and, and let's bear in mind we know from the experience of both Iraq and Afghanistan, where you had companies dedicated just to training security forces, um, it's a difficult thing to do. I mean, we can look at the debacle in Afghanistan, uh, where you had foreign companies. Uh, DynCorp was notable for this in Iraq, for example, training security forces, did a terrible job, got turned back over to regular military forces uh, to do it. Ukrainians are sort of unique because right now, you know, you don't have the sort of fractured militaries uh, that you had in, a, in Iraq and Afghanistan, where often the people were provided by various tribal chiefs or warlords, you know, who were pocketing the money going to the training. I mean, the Ukrainians there really are really there to be trained. But, ne but nevertheless, you know, it should not be done by a company which is also at the same time trying to do this charitable work. It's just oil and uh just oil and water and it doesn't mix. Yeah, I, I think it confuses people in some ways too, because it's it's claiming to do this charitable work, but it's also an LLC. So, it, I mean, this is a for-profit company. So I, I think you're right that that sort of mixing of the two worlds makes this, I, I mean, I think it's turned into a huge mess and that's why we have this lawsuit. We do. I mean, you know, I, I, I think on the one side, um, I don't think anybody in the group at this point really has clean hands. Um, you know, both sides are trying to portray themselves as more or less the innocent and the other guy as the person who messed it all up. Uh, I think personally, I think Bain has perhaps been a little, bo little bit up to a point more transparent in terms of saying, you know, it was always structured as a limited liability uh, company. It was always there to make a profit. Um, I don't think it's the whole truth. I think the article by Jeffrey Carr, you know, indicates, you know, uh, yeah, it was truly there to make a profit, but maybe he was seeking to make a profit by turning it into a firm that would uh, do business for unsavory sorts or try to, you know, or become a full-fledged PMC. And then like a lot of other companies, you know, try to barge your way into other regions of the world, providing a service which was not needed and not wanted. And, you know, if if people like Bain, you know, weren't smart enough to realize that they wanted to expand into Region X and Region X already has a history of not wanting those folks, doesn't speak well for his uh, business acumen, let us say. Uh, I also wanted to briefly mention, I know in the article you talk about um, sort of comparing Mozart with Blackwater. Uh, do you just want to briefly go over that section of the article? Um, well, I, you know, they carry, you know, um, they did different act activities. Mozart in its uh, sort of bifurcated way, both in terms of rescuing civilians and doing military training is not what Blackwater did, you know, in terms of providing personal security, both for diplomats and other officials and providing personal security for convoys. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless uh, they are somewhat similar in the terms of um, 
providing, shall we say, uh, certain military capabilities uh, for Mozart. It, it's the training uh, for Black for Blackwater. It was at times being uh, a force enabler for regular military forces, and also, you know, and also providing um, cadres of people with guns uh, who go out and shot. Uh, shot people. Uh, I think the unifying similarity between the two groups is that in both cases, you simply do not have um, a real-time, uh, well-resourced entity uh, capable of providing oversight on their activities as they occur, you know, which is a recurring problem for for all these groups, uh, you know, and it's a problem I've been focused on for, for decades. Uh, I think there was, you know, speaking on the in industry broadly, um, they, many companies, the bigger companies recognize that this is a problem and are legitimately willing to undertake efforts uh, to try and comply uh, with various regulations. The problem is that many of these regulations, of course, are toothless because, you know, they demand having uh, money and people who will go out and do do diligence on a daily basis. Uh, money's not there. The office is not there. Uh, and the smaller companies uh, generally are engaged in activities uh, which are below their, below their radars. So they get uh, no scrutiny whatsoever. Uh, and that I think is a similarity between Blackwater and Mozart. Uh, Blackwater was bigger, both in terms of the value of contracts, and it did get more scrutiny. Uh, not nearly enough, of course. I mean, I talked when I worked at Sigur. You know, I, I dealt. I talked with one contracting officer. He was working in a building that had previously been the site of a bomb attack. I mean, the, you know, roof of the building was was blown out. You know, literally had you know birds, uh, you know, flying flying in crap crapping on everything, you know, from the top to the bottom, uh, dependent on the companies to fly him out, uh, to go out when he can, uh, to, to audit the books and, you know, see that they were doing uh, proper things with their weaponry. Uh, you know, and it was just one guy with a huge contract, you know, and uh, no wonder they didn't have proper oversight. And that was for Blackwater in Iraq, you know. You know, who's going to do anything for the Mozart group operating in Ukraine? especially when it's not under U.S. government contract, you know, it's, it, to the extent it's getting scrutiny from the Ukrainian government, which may, which, which may have questions about what they're doing, but so far they seem to think, uh, at least insofar as the training was concerned, that, you know, it provided some value, so they were not going to look too closely at it. So in closing, when it comes to the issues around these PMCs, like the Mozart Group or Blackwater, or any other ones, uh, what would the necessary uh, reforms that would need to be made for uh, dealing with the problems posed by some of these PMCs? Like what, what are some of the concrete um, regulations or, or ways of, um, you know, providing more oversight? What would they be? A concrete recommendation would simply be the establishment of a permanent office uh, within the U.S. federal departments that employ these people uh, so that they can go out and have contract officers and contract officers, representatives on the ground 
following what these people do uh, on a daily basis. Uh, now, with respect to the United States, which is a huge employer of these people around the world, that would, you know, you can either do it two ways. You can either set up uh, separate offices within different departments. Obvious departments would be the Department of Defense, Department of State, you know, two of the biggest departments employing these people, also specific agencies like the U.S. Agency for International Development. But, you know, then you're, you know, then you have the problem of having sort of separate silos, you know, maybe providing due diligence uh, for the contractors employed by Department of Defense, you know, and maybe subsequently that contractor also goes to work for Department of State and then later on USAID uh, are, you know, is the oversight agency at the one department going to be willing to transfer their knowledge of that contractor's activities, you know, over to the next department they work for. Uh, my experience with government would suggest not. Uh, so that gets back uh, to the recommendation made by the Inspector General uh, Stuart Bowen, uh, Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, um, where I worked for its final year. Uh, he made the recommendation for having uh, one agency um, uh, drawing on the resources of all the federal departments that employ these people, but not being beholden to any single one of them, uh, which would operate uh, uh, and work with federal departments anticipating their being employed as a part of some future contingency operation, which ostensibly US government says it's learned its lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan and won't do that sort of thing again in the future. And you know, if you believe that, then you want to see me about a bridge I have for sale in Brooklyn, which you can buy really cheap. Uh, to me, that's the recommendation that makes most sense because you cannot believe that the U.S. government isn't going to continue to employ these people all around the world, both even if they're not involved in the con conflict, they're still employing them in peacetime, uh, just in anticipation of a future conflict, you know, uh, being employed in bases uh, or uh, what they call sort of lily pad, uh, uh, the prototypes of future bases that might come to be. Uh, so having an independent en entity beholden to know, uh, yet working with different federal departments uh, in terms of pre preparing for the employment of these people, being able to enact uh, and, and write into the contracts effective oversight and uh, accountability mechanisms that work on a real-time basis is the way to go. Uh, in terms of the amount of money which is uh, spent on, you know, the overall value of these contracts, you know, if you were uh, talking about logistics being done by KVR during uh, the course of their activities in Iraq, you know, we were talking hundreds of billions of dollars. So when they cry, Oh, we can't afford. We can't, you know, we can't afford this. You know, you just have to, you know, you just have to say, like, do you think I was born yesterday? Do you think I have any real interest in listening to this bullshit? We know how much it costs. You know, don't don't screw with me. Well, David Eisenberg, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? And also, how can my listeners keep up with your work? 
Uh, well, I, you know, uh, I, I put news of, co- of private military and security contracting world on my blog every day. Uh, so it's uh, subscriber based, but if you're interested in following that, um, you can do that. Uh, or, you know, uh, just uh, encourage people, you know, just uh, type in uh, private security contractors or private military contractors in your search engine. Uh, you'll find results every day. Uh, there's you know, compared to the old days when I would, you know, struggle for a month to find references to activities of executive outcomes, uh, you won't find uh, any difficulty in, in searching for yourself. You know, just be aware, you know, like um, like anything else, you know, there, there are sources which are sober-minded and there are sources, which, you know, which are hysterical. Stick with the sober, dispassionate ones who trusted news sir servicers, you know, who believe in relatively accurate journalism, whether it be AP, UPI, Reuters, BBC, uh, you know, et cetera, uh, is uh, excellent sources of information out there. Uh, or, you know, dig into contracts themselves, you know, have to, you know if you want, want to wait a few years, uh, you know, try filing a Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, I got one uh, earlier this year, you know, I filed seven years ago. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, it's easy to do. Uh, a lot of blogs out there, aside from my, mine, also providing information. So, you know, feel free, start with me, start with others. Uh, but there's, you know, it's easy to do. I, I also just want to ask, because I just thought of it, because I know I have um, a few Ukrainian listeners, and I know my Ukrainian listeners have um, bigger concerns right now than just something like the Mozart group, but what would you say to uh, a Ukrainian about the Mozart group? Should they be concerned about it? Like, is it draining money in some ways? Um, you know, could it be hurting uh, the Ukrainian cause in some ways? Is what I'm getting uh, at. What I would incur, what I would say to the Ukrainian government, uh, I can understand their need to have somebody do the training when you're up in a situation uh, like you are. Uh, I would just say, a you know. Understand, you know, um, don't take it at face value. I mean, you have trained uh, soldiers and military leaders who are as good as anybody else in the world who understand that, you know, it's useful up to a point, uh, you know, and understand what that point is uh, and understand that maybe this company can, you know, provide training up to that point. But, you know, understand there's also a limitation there. And so you may have people who understand how to do some things. They also need to do, be able to do other things, those other things that they need to do. They're not being trained to do by Mozart. May not be in their contracts so or may contractually not be their fault, but you know, understand that you know, they're taking them up to point B from where they are at point A and maybe they need to do things at a level of point C and they're not gonna get that. That's one thing. The other thing I would say is, to, uh, and, you know, I, I have all the sympathy, sympathy in the world for Ukrainians and people in the Ukrainian government, uh, understand this, at some point the war ends and then like other countries who have been in war, you're going to have to try and reconstruct your country. You're going to try and rebuild what's been destroyed. At that point, you know, every contracting company in the world is going to be bidding for a huge slew of contracts that are inevitably going to have to be made. And what I would say to them, 
as um, we go about re, uh, trying to reconstruct their country. You'll need these companies, but be very careful of who you employ. Be very careful about uh, how you draft the contracts. And for God's sakes, be sure what once you've awarded the contract that you have people there watching what they're doing every day. Not to say that these companies will necessarily try to take the money and run, but reconstructing uh, a country which has been at war, you have only to look at the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan and see the many scandals that happened there. Uh, so just watch out and uh, keep, aware, keep both your eyes open. I can't put it any better than that. Well, thank you again, David Eisenberg. I hope we can speak again in the future uh, as there's more developments on these topics. Thank you so much for coming on Parallax Views. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Eisenberg. If you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Your donations are very much appreciated and will help with a project I'm working on, namely the archiving of prior Parallax Views episodes into a single Excel file. You can currently get a number of the older episodes through that Excel file exclusively on Patreon. So if you want to support Parallax Views, do so at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.